0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, and as always, I'm joined by the incomparable Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Welcome back, Clay. Thanks, Scott. Good to see you again. Yeah, always good to see you. Uh, Tonight, we continue our mini-series of lectures presented at the 2022 Tri-State Nutrition Conference titled, Exploring In-Utero Influences on Transgenerational Performance. Last week, we featured uh, Dr. Jack Britt and his presentation titled, Epigenetics Will Change How We Manage Cattle. If you missed that one, you'll want to go back and listen to it. This week, we're highlighting uh, Dr. Jimena Laporta from the University of Wisconsin and her presentation titled, Phenotypic and Molecular Signatures of Fetal Hypothermia.
1: Tonight's podcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk. Reduced metabolic disorders and even in utero benefits to her calf, leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. Clay, what are some
0: of the things the audience will want to pay particular attention to as they listen to this presentation?
2: Yes, I've always, you know, I've really been fascinated by this this research for a number of years now. Uh, that started at the University of Florida. Dr. Laporta does a very nice job summarizing the short and long term effects of an utero heat stress, um, really the last six weeks of gestation. And it's amazing the impacts that heat stress, the last six weeks of gestation has, first of all, on the dam herself and you know productivity in that succeeding lactation, uh, basically a five kilo loss in milk yield, which is just amazing. Um, but also how it affects both the calf that's born to that he stress dam and the granddaughters hmm. born there. So it's uh, she does a very nice job laying that out uh, during during this presentation. So they you know they've really gone out to the to the third generation out to, to show productive impacts going out at le- at least uh, to the grand the granddaughters now.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Thank you for that overview, Clay. And now let's go to the presentation.
3: Well, I would like to thank Clay for that introduction and Balkan for the invitation to speak today. And I want to thank Dr. Britt for this outstanding presentation on the key mechanisms of epigenetics. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to expand on one of the examples that he gave, and try to convince you and show you how heat stress during a relatively short period of time can really exert a phenotypic effect that lasts for multiple generations, but also a molecular signature, an epigenetic signature that can also remain for multiple lactations and multiple generations. All right, so this is going to be the outline of the presentation. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on heat stress, fetal programming, and the epigenome. And then we're going to dive right into the phenotypic signature, those short and long-term effects of in utero heat stress. And then we're going to move on to the molecular signatures on the mammary gland and the liver, and uh, trying to uncover those uh, uh, genes that are um, shared between these two. So it's now news to this audience that heat stress is one of the largest um, effect, uh, one of the largest uh, challenges to the efficiency and productivity of dairy cattle. So on one hand, we have global um, uh, temperatures rising all across the world, and on the other hand, we have modern dairy cattle that are high producing and they're generating a lot of metabolic heat. Uh, production and they are becoming more and more sensitive to even small changes in temperatures so traditionally the focus of heat stress research and the development development of um, mitigating technologies have been focused on lactating cattle. And there's a good reason for doing that. Uh, if a cow is heat-stressed, if a lactating cow is under heat stress, she will immediately drop milk production, dry matter intake, and she will become money-pit. So we'll definitely need to continue to cool our lactating cows. But heat stress does not discriminate, and it will really also take a toll and impact the physiology, productivity, and also welfare of um, dairy cattle in general, independent of the age, independent of the physiological status of the animal. And that's where I have spent a lot of my time uh, researching on the heat stress effects on the calf, on the nulliparous heifer, and on the dry cow. And we're going to focus on the dry cow today. What's the impact of uh, heat stress on the dry cows? This is sometimes uh, overlooked, or at least paid less attention. Uh, But we have to think that during the dry period, the cow is undergoing, the mammogram of the cow is undergoing two very important uh, developmental events. Involution, that starts right after milk stasis, and that's where. it's characterized by cell death, and at this point in time, we want cell death to get rid of those uh, worn-out cells that have been producing milk for the last 10 months. And then we move on to the redevelopment phase. As the cow approaches parturition with the hormones of pregnancy, those mammogenic hormones are going to stimulate cell proliferation and uh, producing new cells that are going to start secreting milk as the cow uh, calves. And so we know that heat stress really uh, derails exposure of dry pregnant cows to heat stress, derails these uh, cellular processes that are highly regulated. And consequently, the cows are going to produce less milk in the next, next lactation. How much less milk? Well, on average, five kilograms per day in the entire lactation. And this this is just a summary slide. This is just a summary slide showing 14 studies in different countries using different cooling systems, um, varying from just simply shade to more sophisticated cooling techniques with fans and soakers um, for dry cows. But the bottom line here, uh, and this is just milk yield, so the bottom line here is that regardless of the country or regardless of the cooling method use, we can see that if cooling is not provided to dry cows under heat stress, and that's represented by the uh, red columns, they're going to reduce milk yield by 5 kilograms, regardless of the country and regardless of the cooling method use. Now, we also have um, a problem here, because the dry dry cow is also pregnant at that time, and this is what Dr. Reid was alluding to. During this time, we have, I will say, two generations now under the, the spotlight. And so it's not only about the uh, involuting mammary gland at this time point, but the dry period also coincides with the last trimester of gestation, which is a period of exponential growth of the fetus. And we now know that maternal heat stress during that time will lead to intrauterine um, hyperthermia. And that will result in smaller daughters that are born to those cows um, that are less able to survive in the herd. And they are going to produce less milk in their first lactation. So that's two years after they are born, or two years after that the initial insult was exerted on the mother. So, this was the state of the art when I started, I started studying this uh, area of research, and I started asking some uh, questions and looking at this from different angles. So what is the mechanistic link linking the intrauterine environment with future productivity? What happens beyond that first lactation? Is it transient, or is, is it lactational? What happens beyond the first generation? Is only one generation affected, or two generations? So I'm particularly interested in understanding how uh, feed, the fetal programming affects of inutero hyperthermia and how those result in lifelong implications. So the fetus is going to be extremely sensitive to the maternal, infu- maternal influences in general, and those can be positive or negatives. negative. Clearly, heat stress is, is a negative influence on the dam and the offspring. And this happens at all stages of gestation. But if you think about the uh, late gestation, we we think that all the organs are there, the the offspring is just growing, the fetus is just growing. But there are still very important uh, uh, dynamic. This is a very important dynamic period of developmental plasticity in the developing offspring. And there's uh, fast-developing cellular events, such as cell division, cell differentiation, the establishment of cell hierarchy as well, that are regulating those later stages of development and organ maturation. So in utero hyperthermia can really derail the developing trajectory of organs and systems. For example, uh, the neuroendocrine system uh, and the communication between the brain and the endocrine system organ growth in general, uh, the structure and function of the organ, overall metabolism, overall physiology of the, of the offspring, and also the germline. Uh, this is what Dr. Bill w- w- uh, Britt was alluding to uh, earlier. Um, the fetal daughter uh, is developing the uh, oocytes at that time, so uh, that's where the epigenome comes in, and we think that intrauterine hyperthermia is altering the epigenome so the epigenome comes in as one of the potential mechanisms linking uh, this intrauterine environment with postnatal performance and as he alluded early, epigenetics simply mean, means above or in addition to the traditional genetic basis of inheritance that we're all um, uh, that we all know about and it's it's not more than, in, in essence, it's a sim- simple concept, but the, the biology is very complex. So it's not more than chemical changes that are going to um, alter the DNA physical structure without changing the sequence. So you have methyl groups that are going to bind to the, physically bind to the DNA, uh, or you have other factors that are going to bind to the tail of the histones, and that's going to alter the accessibility of the DNA uh, to the machinery. And that will lead to uh, the regulation of what genes are going to be turned on and off at the specific um, cell type or organ. And so the epigenome here is playing an important role in orchestrating. Uh, this interplay between the environment and the genome, determining the phenotype that we see, what we measure, milk production, uh, growth, uh, and stuff like that. So there are three main mechanisms that are causing epigenetic changes. We have histone modifications, known coding microRNAs, and DNA methylation. We and others focus mostly on DNA methylation because it's uh, the one that we understand more, and it's more stable uh, of, the, uh, of the other uh, types of mechanisms that we know. And if we think about um, the 101, if we have the promoter of a gene that has a methyl group on it. Um, the gene is going to be repressed. The expression of that gene is going to be repressed. We now know that this this is not always true, but this is kind of the basis of uh, DNA methylation. So the way I like to think about this is environmental signals that are going to be received by the epigenome, recorded by the epigenome, remember across um, cell generations and cell division, and revealed in an altered gene expression and cell function. Or in other words, a a specific transcriptome of of that cell or that tissue, that individual. But they also can be reversible. So this is where the epigenome comes as a key mechanism allowing for phenotypic plasticity within a fixed genotype. And this is what Dr. Reed was alluding to us earlier. So we're going to move on to uh, look at the phenotypic signature of intrauterine hyperthermia, and we're going to classify that in the short and long-term lasting effects of heat stress. So one of the hallmarks of postnatal heat stress uh, uh, of in heat stress that I classified as short-term. And, and short-term, I refer to pre winning once uh, that calf is born and during the pre winning period. One of the hallmarks is a reduction in gestation length. So those um, calves are going to be gestated, on average, five days less that uh, those born to in utero cool dams. So there's less time for them to grow, and there's less time for the mammary development of the, the dam. There's also They are also born smaller. Uh, and this uh, small body weight is not only at birth, but it remains at weaning. On average, there's a 10% reduction in um, body weight, and also they are born smaller. And this um, reduction in size remains for at least one year of age. So we see that they have reduced hip height, reduced body length, reduced chest girth, and significant reductions in, cells are in, in head circumference. And all of these are hallmarks of intraurine growth restriction that we're more used to hearing in the human literature but these are all hallmarks of in utero heat stress. Not only the, the body weight and the size of the animal, but also as a percentage of, of body weight, we see there's organ, organ weight uh, differences. We see alterations in immune organs. We see, we see enlarged adrenal glands, which um, are the ones producing cortisol, and you might relate uh, stress to cortisol. Um, We see smaller ovaries at weaning in these heifers that are born to in utero heat-stress dams. And we also see smaller mammary glands. And I'm a a mammary physiologist, so this is very interesting to me. So we see this is an example of a mammary gland that we harvest at weaning, so after weaning. So this is the uh, 63 days of life. Um, And you can see that the ones coming from in utero heat stress are quite small uh, compared to the in utero cool ones. Not only small in, in length and size and weight, but when we dissect the tissues that are within the gland, we see that they have less fat pad and less parenchyma tissue. Okay, the fat pad is going to be supporting tissue that the parenchyma is going to grow into, so they have less, less room to grow and less parenchyma tissue to, to start off their life, their early life. When we look at inside those uh, parenchyma, the, the parenchyma tissue, we look at the uh, tissue microstructure, we see that they have fewer and smaller epithelial ductal structures. So in utero heat stress, those 46 days that the developing heifer is under heat stress in utero is going to limit normal uh, mammary gland development during uh, the developmental trajectory during this time. We see also impairments in, immune, in innate and adaptive immunity. We, they have lower circulating immunoglobulins uh, at birth and throughout the pre winning period. And they have reduced apparent efficiency of absorption, so they are less capable of as- absorbing immunoglobulins per colostrum. Even if you give him- them the same-, the same amount of immunoglobulins, they are absorbing less, on average uh, 15% less. They have lower peripheral blood mononuclear cell proliferation. So overall, a less robust uh, immune response. So they have greater odds of uh, having a health event, and they require more assistance from the personnel, from veterinarians, and they require more treatments during that pre winning period. So they are a lot of work. They also eat less when we measure grain intake during that pre winning and post winning period. We see that, particularly in, during those weeks approaching uh, winning, they eat on average 200 less uh, grams of um, grain. And that's also um, during the week of winning and the week after winning. We see that effect. And also, they have impairments in the way they thermoregulate. So they were under in utero hyperthermia. And once they are born, their, bo- their body cod- core body temperature is, on average, 0.2 degrees Celsius higher than those that were born to an in utero cool dam. And that's true for the entire pre period. So they are more susceptible, in a way, to heat stress once they are born. Now. To look at the long-term effects of heat stress, we did this retrospective analysis of 10 years' worth of data from the University of Florida. We collected AFI records, and we look look at different lifetime events. So we were able to gather 400 dams that were uh, either under heat stress or cooling during the entire dry period. And that's the first generation, um, a little bit different terminology to Dr. Britt here, but we call those F0, or the dam. And then we were able to follow 160 daughters. So we call those the F1, or daughters. And then 50 granddaughters, or F2s, uh, in our data set. So having this large data set of pregnant dams, uh, daughters, and granddaughters, allowed us to look at the uh, productive life and lifespan, milk loss, and ask the question if it was transient or or if it was multilactational and look at if it was multi generational as well and briefly at the financial implications of this so this is a productive the survival analysis for the f1s so those daughters And you can see here we have the survival percentage in the uh, y-axis and the age of the animal in the x-axis. So you can see there's a trend here where the red line represented the heat stress daughters. It's always below the black line that represents the in utero cool daughters. So in utero heat stress is gonna reduce uh, survival to first calving, survival through the first, second, and third lactation, an overall productive life by five months, and the lifespan of the animal in general for almost 12 months. Now, those uh, first lactation heifers that actually make it to lactation, these are the daughters again. Um, this is milk production across the first 30, 35 weeks in milk. We see the same trend. That red line is always below the black line, and that red line represents the heat stress daughters. So on average, for 35 weeks, they produce 2.2 kilos less compared to the cool daughters. That's their first lactation. Those that make it to the second lactation, we see the same trend. Um, They produce, on average, 2.3 kilos less uh, for the first 35 weeks in milk. And in the third lactation, we see the same trend. They are going to produce less milk. And this is milk yield, uh, but we also see reductions in uh, in fat and protein yields as well for at least these three lactations that I show you. So there's this clear in utero programming of this less productive phenotype with uh, lifelong consequences, as I just show you.
0: Clay, last week, Dr. Britt talked about how methylation works. And this week, Dr. Uh, Laporta tells us that in utero, heat stress can trigger methylation patterns. Can you summarize that for us, uh, the relevance of this, and expound on why and how we can mitigate the effects? Can methyl supplementation help?
2: Yeah, it can. Um, so, you know, she does a very nice job explaining, you know, first of all, how it's impacting mammary cell development in these animals. Uh, as well as a number of other things, you know, ovary size of the fetus that's in there. There are a lot of impacts, you know, both on the fetus uh, that's inside this heat stress dam and again going out to the, the granddaughters at this point, right? Because the so <clears throat> when, when you have a pregnant dry cow, there really are three generations sitting there that you're impacting. You're impacting that dam herself you know, from a productivity standpoint in this succeeding lactation, you're impacting the fetus that's inside of her. But also, you have to remember that if that fetus is a heifer calf sitting inside of the cow, that all of her oocytes are present. So you're affecting that third generation through the oocytes that are being developed in that calf. So, so DNA methylation can play a huge role here. Again, you know, turning genes off and on, and you know, certainly a methyl donor like choline could play a key role here. Of course, the first thing to remember is cool these dry cows, right? We want to prevent, we want to try to mitigate the effects of heat stress as much as we can in late in, in late gestation. That that that's the first thing that to glean from the research, but certainly, you know, having adequate supply of methyl donors in late gestation will help as well.
0: All right. Thank you for that explanation, Clay. And now back to the presentation.
3: So to answer the question, if it's multi-generational, I think the answer to that is yes. This is the survival curve for the granddaughters. And we see again the same trend, the red line representing the granddaughters, okay? Um, it's always below the black line representing the granddaughters. And clearly, we have uh, fewer animals here. And so this is exciting to see that these animals are also producing less milk. Uh, this is a part of what Dr. Ridge showed in his presentation. But on average, in the first lactation, those granddaughters, and this is four or five years down the road, uh, where the initial stress insult on the pregnant dam occurred, they produce 1.3 kilograms less per day. We also look at the second and third lactation. Clearly, we have fewer animals by then, so we don't even show that. But the trend, uh, numerical trend, uh, remains. So this legislation heat stress exerts carryover effects on at least uh, two generations or three generations, depending how you want to see it. And this is three or four years down the road when the uh, initial heat stress insult occurred. How much is this cost in the dairy industry? I think we have a good um, estimation of the financial loss in lactating cows at $1.5 billion by St. Pierre in in 2003, and also for dry cows by Ferreira in 2016 for an estimated $800 million for the, the loss in milk of that dry cow under heat stress across the US. But I think we would be underestimating these uh, estimates if we don't consider the losses in the progeny of that uh, dry pregnant cow, of the offspring of that dry pregnant cow. So we wanted to estimate that, uh, uh, and we did that using the milk yield and survival data that I just showed, and uh, assuming that no cows in the US, uh, no dry cows in the US were cool. So this is showing. 25 states across the uh, US, and uh, the million dollar loss uh, in the x axis. And so, we, what we did here, we split it up in heifer rearing costs, that increase in heifer rearing costs uh, in those animals, the decrease in productive life, and the decrease in milk production of those by state. So, when we look at collectively, we see that across the US, uh, those losses can be up to $600 million. And this is just looking at the daughters, okay? So we, we see here the tri-state here, Indiana, Michigan, and Idaho. Um, you can have, uh, I think it's $16 million and $18 million losses uh, if dry cows are not cool. So if you think, if, if we combine these with the losses of the dry, Dam of the dam, the total annual loss uh, due to late gestation heat stress can be can climb up to 1.4 million dollars, billion dollars, and that's comparable to the estimates for lactating cows. So, not saying that this is more or less important, but if you think about it, can really have a huge economic impact uh, if we consider the losses in the offspring. And this is not even considered the uh, granddaughters or the uh, noliparous heifers uh, under heat stress. All right, so I, I show you all the phenotypic effects of in utero heat stress, and we're going to now move to the molecular signature of in utero heat stress. We're going to focus on the mammary gland and the liver. So before we move on, um, I want to just remind you that when we think about milk production during lactation, we um, we put this as a function of the the number of mammary epithelial cells that are present within the mammary gland, and that's a function of the cell growth, a ratio of the cell growth and cell death, and also the mammary epithelial cell activity or metabolism, and that can be related to the, the genes and proteins that those cells are expressing and how they are regulated. So what we wanted to look was the carryover effects of in utero heat stress on mammary development and function, so tackling both sides of the equation. So what we did here, we went in two years later, and we took a mammary biopsy on the first lactation, on those daughters that were under in utero heat stress or in utero cooling uh, when they were being gestated. Okay, so two years after when they start their first lactation, we took a biopsy at 21 and 42 days in milk. And we, what we did with that, we put it on a slide and we look it under the microscope. We do many different stainings. What we see here is the first column is the in utero cool mammary glands of those daughters and in utero heat stress daughters. In the second column, AEL refers to the alveoli, which is the synthetic unit of the mammary gland. And it's composed of a single layer of mammary epithelial cells. And remember that this is a two-dimensional um, image. But in reality, those are 3D kind of like balls of uh, mammary, a single layer of mammary epithelial cells. And what we did is we look closer into, I think you can clearly see how the alveoli of the in- utero heat stress are, are shrinked, are smaller. So when we look closer into that tissue, we see that the lumen, the luminal alveolar area of those alveoli is quite smaller. It's 46% smaller. and. When we count the number of mammary epithelial cells forming that alveoli, we see that there are significantly fewer mammary epithelial cells composing those alveoli. Remember, each individual cell is responsible for making milk, right? So fewer cells, fewer milk synthetic capacity. We also see that these uh, cells have lower proliferation, proliferative capacity, so they were proliferating less. And there's more connective tissue we see here in blue. In the second um, column, you see a lot more blue. And the stroma is, is important to support the secretory tissue. But during lactation, you want to maximize the uh, epithelial structure, the secretory tissue, and minimize the stroma tissue. So this is a little model that we put together. But uh, the, the, the overall conclusion here is that we see compromised synthetic capacity and milk storage capacity in the in-utero heat stress daughter's mammary gland. And when we combine these, these are two undesirable characteristics during lactation. And we think that this might be contributing to the reduced lactation performance that we see in these uh, uh, daughters. Now, with the same samples on the same model, we wanted to look at the DNA methylation pattern, asking the question if these alterations in DNA methylation, are these triggered by in utero heat stress? And can we explain the phenotypic outcomes uh, with these? So we did uh, reduce representation by sulfate sequencing to answer this question. We found 523 differentially methylated cytosines. In, uh, in, those, uh, in the mammary glands of, of the in utero heat stress daughters. And those were associated with 135 differentially methylated genes. So when we look at what genes, um, we see that most of them were involved in stress response, mammary development, and milk synthesis. There's a handful uh, here hypomethylated genes in in utero heat stress and hypermethylated genes in in utero heat stress. We see uh, tyrosine kinases um, involving cell survival, cell, cell migration. We see uh, protein kinases. We, th- we see um, protein ligase involving cell-to-cell cell communication. So very important pathways affected there. But the, the important genes. But when we look at the pathways that these genes were involved with, we see that these differentially methylated genes were associated with more fundamental cellular processes such as genomic stability cell survival, transcription, translation. So we kind of asked the, the question, are these differentially methylated genes in the mammary gland that we're seeing, are those unique to the mammary gland? Or are there common patterns of DNA methylation that are induced by utero heat stress, regardless of sex, of age, or tissue type? So we compare the data set that we had, those 135 genes in the mammary gland, with differentially methylated genes in the liver of bull calves at birth, so completely different sex, age, and tissue type. And we look at if there were any common patterns there. And we were happy to see that we have 50 genes that were differentia- the same in both tissues, tissue types um, that were shared between the two data sets. So we see 20 of those that code for ribosomal RNA, So we know how important that is in translating the mRNA into uh, protein. And uh, so in utero heat stress seems to be affecting the protein synthetic machinery. And and that can have a a huge impact on on protein synthesis. Uh, Mitochondrial function, uh, ATP synthesis, we see a few genes involved in that. We know how important energy is for lactation and for growth. So, we see that as well DNA repair, genomic integrity, cell addition and migration, intracellular signaling. We see phospholipase C, you might have heard about it at some point in your life. That's a very important intracellular signaling pathway affecting multiple other functions, right? So, this was exciting, but we had another question. And that question was, are these differentially methylated genes that we're seeing uniquely methylated in response to in-utero heat stress or heat stress in general? So we compare in-utero prenatal heat stress with uh, heat stress postnatally. So here we use the same tissue, so we use the data set um, that we have those... uh, Bull calves born to in utero heat stress or in utero cool dams. And we compare uh, that data set to the, the differentially methylated genes that we found in the liver of calves that were heat stress or cool postnatally. So a very different developmental stage there. And again, we find 50 genes, and these 50 is just a coincidence, it's not the same 50 genes. So we see. Hepatocyte proliferation, not surprising. Wind signaling pathway, very important pathway, as Dr. Hansen, he knows all about it. Angiogenesis, uh, cell signaling again. We see a protein kinase here that phosphorylates a lot of proteins downstream and affects different functions. So we were excited to see that there are indeed common patterns of DNA methylation uh, that are induced by both prenatal, but also postnatal heat stress. So we wonder, are these environmentally driven epigenetic effects? So regardless of the tissue, the, the gender, uh, and the um, stage of life, um, heat stress is impacting um, specific genes. So here we found five, five genes when we compared all data sets. And uh, that was pretty exciting. And we're definitely looking more into these genes And uh, as we speak. But some of them are quite interesting. We see COX-1. It's, it's a very conserved pathway in, in mammalian development. It's a DNA-binding protein that regulates uh, cell morphogenesis, differentiation, cell cycle progression. So uh, we also see NOT-4, which is uh, very conserved signaling pathways as well, involved in cell differentiation, proliferation, apoptosis. And also branching morphogenesis, which is particularly important in the mammary gland. We also see, again, these phospholipase C that I mentioned earlier uh, involving intracellular signaling, and it's using uh, calcium as a cofactor to catalyze uh, the formation of diacylglycerol and IP3. And that's involved in the transduction of uh, extracellular signaling. So uh, heat stress, whether it's prenatal, postnatal, um, in whatever tissue we're looking at, at least uh, for now, we see these consistent patterns of genes that are uh, methylated uh, by that. So in summary, in utero heat stress uh, induced fetal programming of the offspring, we see these very marked phenotypic effects in uh, growth, organ development, immune function, survival, longevity, and milk yield. And we see that in terms of milk yield, when we look more into the mammary gland, we see that in utero heat stress, is derailing the normal developmental trajectory of the mammary gland. We see smaller alveoli, which are the secretory units of the mammary gland, that have fewer mammary epithelial cells, which are the cells that are making the milk, so you have less to start with, so you have a problem. Um, And those uh, have less synthetic capacity. Now, we see that uh, in utero heat stress triggers these distinctive but also unique methylation patterns that are organ-specific in terms of the mammogram and liver we see um, those that are unique to the mammary gland, and we see common differentially methylated genes in the liver and the mammary gland. And we're postulating these environmentally driven epigenetic changes to specific genes, and definitely doing more work in that area. We also see that these phenotypes that we discuss persist until at least the second generation, or the granddaughters, if you will. Um, so there are multi-generational effects. Um, I cannot say if those are going to be transgenerationals because we would have to look at the um, third generation, so the F3, to really be sure that those are transgenerational. But we do see that these F2s, these granddaughters, survive less and produce less milk three, four years down the road. So some final remarks here. Um, I want you to think about the importance of the dry period. And why is that? Is because there are two programming effects, or maybe three, I should say. Um, one is, is the mammary development of the dam and, and heat stress impacting her ability to produce milk in the next lactation. The second one being the fetal development of the daughter, we often tend, uh, don't think about the early life developmental progression of the mammary gland, and we start thinking about that at puberty. But we can clearly see that if we give them uh, a bad start, they are going to, you know, uh, produce less milk. So I, I like to think about this as an opportunity uh, for I- the implementation of management interventions. Um, here we are discussing. Um, cooling or heat abatement in this case, but perhaps nutritional intervention of a combination of both of those uh, that can have really long-term impacts. And it's a really uh, short, relatively short period of time uh, that we can generate a long-lasting impact. So with that, I would like to thank uh, Balken for the invitation to speak today my former and current institutions for their financial support uh, uh, across the years, and USDA NIFA for funding, Jeff Dahl, collaborator at the University of Florida, and students and postdocs, but particularly uh, Amy, Amy Skibble, uh, Veronique Wallet, two postdocs that did most of the work, and Bethany Datosan, uh, a PhD student as well.
1: Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure precision-release nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit Balcom.com slash NitroSure.
0: Clay, any thoughts you'd like to leave uh, the audience as we close this one out?
2: Yeah, again, Cool the dry cows, and it's not just those last three weeks before calving. If you look, if you look at all this research that's been published, uh, mainly out of the University of Florida, they you have to cool these cows the last six weeks of gestation. There are some things happening very early on during the dry period that we that we can't make up for just by cooling dry cows the last three weeks of gesta- gestation. So. We need we need to really emphasize cooling dry cows the full dry period that'd be my first takeaway and then the second one is um is to really think about methyl donor supplementation particularly choline supplementation and you know we, we've not we really haven't looked at this specifically in a heat stress situation at this point but we certainly have indications that you know that that choline supplementation of these dams the last three weeks pre-calving has very positive impacts on the calves born to those dams.
0: Well, thank you, Clay. If you'd like to view Dr. Laporta's full webinar and slides, go to balchemcom slash real science and scroll down to April 27th, 2022. The title you'll see there is the 2022 Tri-State Dairy Nutrition Pre-Conference symposia exploring in utero influences on transgenerational performance. Click the link and all four of the presentations will be there for you to view and to click on. Clay, as always, it's been a real treat having you here now in the well-worn bar stool here at The Exchange. Uh, to our loyal listeners, be sure to look for our next podcast in the series next week when we will be featuring Dr. Eric Capio from Balchem Corporation. Uh, his talk is titled The Growing Importance of Choline in in prenatal human nutrition. As always, thank you for joining us here tonight uh, for the conversation. We hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun and we hope to see you next time here at Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.
1: We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot, along with your address and t-shirt size, to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.